certainly enjoyed the services this morning. I guess a better way to put it, I felt blessed by the services this morning through the singing of the hymns and the prayers that's been offered. Hope you'll continue to pray for me this morning that the Lord would bless me to have light and liberty in what I'd like to speak to you about. I'd like to look at a question asked by the wisest man who's ever lived on this earth with the exception of Jesus Christ. This question is asked by Solomon. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Solomon asked the question, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? He says, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built for thee. Now the house that Solomon built is Solomon's temple. Solomon built this temple under the direction of God, according to God's purpose. If you go to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll find where God had given David rest from all of his enemies. And David kind of looked out, you might say, and said, I dwell in the house of cedars, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. Somehow or another, it seems like David didn't think this was right that the house he was living in was more impressive than the ark of God where it dwelt. Now the ark of God was symbolic of the presence of God and the power of God when it was rightly viewed. There came a time when Israel made an idol out of it and they realized the error of their, of their attitude and God allowed that ark to be taken by the Philistines. But the ark represented God's presence and David felt like it ought to have a better place than just to dwell behind curtains, especially since he and his house dwelt in a house of cedar. And cedar was the, you might say, was the very best there was in that day. When the Bible speaks about the cedars of Lebanon, you're talking about the very best of the forest, you see. And so he expressed this to Nathan, but God told Nathan to go back to David and tell David, he says, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, and I delivered you from all your enemies and elevated you and established you to be one of the great men of the world. He says, now you're a man of war. He says, since I have delivered Israel out of Egypt, he says, I've never instructed anyone to build me a house, but I just simply dwelt in a tent. Now think about that. Here's God who spoke the world into existence Here's God who created and formed the nation of Israel. Here's God who delivered them out of the land of Egypt totally and completely. And yet God dwelt in a tent. So this is his message back to David. He says, David, when thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, he said, from thy seed that shall proceed out of thy bowels, he says, I will have him to build me a house and will establish his kingdom forever. Now, in the short term, that was Solomon he was talking about. But in the long term, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this briefly last Sunday, how that Christ would be the one who come through the lineage of David. Remember Matthew 1.1, this is the generation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so it was Christ who would sit upon this throne and rule in this kingdom forever. But nevertheless, this is how the house came into existence, you might say, or the temple was eventually built. God gave Solomon rest for seven years. It took him seven years to build this house. 
And he was able to devote his entire attention to it. His time, his mind, his energy, everything was devoted to build on this house. And God providentially gave him rest from all of his enemies so he would have all the resources and all the energy and everything about him could be devoted entirely to building this house. So we come to that eighth chapter of 1 Kings and we find where Solomon is going to dedicate this house to God. And then after dedicating it, he asks this question, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? Now the glory of God had existed and was made manifest in the past. We find the first time that God's glory is brought to our attention is in Exodus chapter 16. After Israel's been delivered out of the land of Egypt and across you know, the Red Sea and into the wilderness, they go three days without anything to drink and they begin to murmur, but God blesses them to come to a place called Elam. In Elam we find where there's 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. He blessed them to find a little oasis right out there in the wilderness to take care of their needs. That's in the last part of Exodus 15. But then we go into 16 and they begin to murmur against God because now they're hungry. And God responds by telling them that he's going to send them manna from on high and also quail. Manna in the morning, quail in the evenings. And the Bible says they looked out into the wilderness and they saw a cloud and the glory of God appeared in the cloud. Now a cloud and God's glory go hand in hand. This first time the glory of God is mentioned in the Bible. It's out there in the wilderness and they look out in the wilderness and see this cloud and God's glory and here's God's message to them through Moses. And you see it's a very merciful message because they've done murmured about the water and God supplied them, murmured about the food, now God's going to supply it. They've seen the ten plagues in Egypt down there have displayed, or they've seen God's uh, great power on display in bringing them out of there totally and complete without the loss of one. And yet in no time at all, they begin to murmur. That's part of all of our human nature. And murmuring is a lack of thanksgiving. That's why God despises murmuring and complaining. It shows you're not thankful for what you have. You know, uh, how many times does people ask you how you're doing? You can say, well, things could be better. I'm, I'm sure you probably have answered that way. You've heard other people answer that way. Well, I just usually tell people, well, can things be worse? You know, can things be worse? Uh, I remember I used to ask this man in Florida all the time, how are you doing? I finally... He had his pat answer, well, things could be better. And I said, well, have you ever thought about could things be worse? And he said, well, I hadn't thought about that. Well, I can assure you, as bad as things are right now, it's not as bad as it could be. Things definitely could be worse. Okay, it definitely could be worse. Then we come over to the 24th chapter of Exodus. And we find here where God, a cloud overshadows Mount Sinai, for six days, and on the seventh day, his glory appears, and God calls Moses up there into the mountain. And Moses will spend 40 days and 40 nights with God on top of that mountain. Can you imagine that? Just you and God on top of a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights out of sight of all the people. Well, Mount Sinai, and here's where God delivered the law to Moses. It says he called him up into his glory. All right? Well, then we come to chapter 33 in the book of Exodus. We find where the Lord has told Moses, he's going to send him, and my presence shall go with thee. And Moses said, Lord, if thou goest not with me, then do not send me. And then Moses makes a request. He says, Lord, I want to see your glory. 
Now, Moses just spent 40 days on top of Mount Sinai in communion with God, which has got to be probably the greatest um, event along those lines that man's ever experienced this short of heaven. And yet now Moses is asking for more. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, James tells us we receive not because we ask not. If we want to receive, then we should do some asking. We should do some knocking. We should be doing some looking. And uh, so Moses is doing that. And Moses wants to see his glory. And God's response is this to Moses. He says, Thou shalt not see my face, for no man can see my face and live. He said, But I will allow you to see my goodness. And I think here we have a definition of glory. Is that, in fact, it's the goodness of God. I'll allow you to see my goodness. He said, and I will proclaim my name, and I will show you that I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will proclaim my name in that regard, and you can see my goodness. And he says, but you cannot see my face and live. It's just not possible for mortal man to look on the face of Almighty God, the eternal God, and see his face and live. So he says to Moses, here's a rock. Come and stand on this rock beside me. Remember, it was a rock that God brought water out. The water just gushed out of a rock, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that the Israelites followed that rock, and that rock was Christ. He says, here's a rock. Stand upon this rock. And he says, I will take you, and I'll put you into the cleft of the rock. Now, here's a cleft in the rock, and God is going to put Moses in the cleft of the rock. He says, then I will take my hand, and I will hide thee. Notice the imagery here. Will hide thee. And then I will pass by thee, and I'll remove my hand, and you'll see my hand aparts. That's all he was going to allow Moses to see. It's all Moses could see, but in doing that, he saw the goodness of God and saw God's glory. When Moses finally built the tabernacle, come to the last chapter there in the book of Exodus, chapter 40, you're going to find when he completed just like God had given him instructions in the mount. It says, A cloud appeared over the tabernacle, and God's glory filled the tabernacle. And then we come to 1 Kings chapter 8, and when, Mo, when Solomon has built this house, he put the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, in the house. It contained the two tables that he gave Moses on top of the mount. It says the Levites could not minister at that time because the, a cloud appeared and the glory of God filled the temple. Now God's glory filled the tabernacle. God's glory filled the temple. As we study the rest of this throughout the Old Testament, we'll find eventually God's glory departed from the temple due to the rebellion and disobedience of the nation of Israel. Solomon asked the question. Here's the wisest man who's ever lived. He asked the question. Will God indeed dwell upon the earth? Behold, the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. Then how much less this house? Early in this chapter, the psalm began to dedicate the house. He says, for God has said, I will dwell in the thick darkness. He says, I will dwell in the thick darkness. This is my house. But Solomon cannot understand how that God whom the heaven and heaven, heavens cannot contain, could possibly dwell in this house built by hands? That's the question. The wisest man who's ever lived. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 4, just briefly. 
And you'll find where Solomon had more wisdom. The Bible says Solomon had more wisdom than all the, all the kings of the earth, all the, the people of the east, all the wisdom of Egypt. Solomon's wisdom excelled that. It exceeded that. Solomon prayed for wisdom. You know, James 1.5 tells us that's what we're to do. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who with all men liberally and upbraideth not. To all men that ask for wisdom, God has promised to give wisdom. Solomon prayed for wisdom. He said, I, I, I don't have the ability, putting my own words here, he says, to go in and out before this greater people. I need wisdom on high. And God gave it to him because he didn't pray selfishly. He prayed very unselfishly for the benefit of the people. And God gave him wisdom that exceeded all the wisdom of the world. And Solomon spake 3,000 uh, songs, okay, and over a thousand proverbs. And he named trees, and he named beasts, and fowls, and creeping things, and fishes of the sea. His wisdom was astonishing. It said all the kings came to him to hear his wisdom. He was not the only king on the earth at that time, but he was king of kings. And that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's Lord of lords and king of kings, who is wisdom personified. So this man of this great wisdom, you know, he displayed that with the two women, right? You should be familiar with that story, I'm sure. The two women both had a child. And then during the night, the child of one woman died. And the woman whose child died, while the other woman slept, switched babies. And put the dead child, her child that died, in the arms of the woman that was sleeping and took her baby to her. And the next morning, the woman whose child was still living awoke to realize this is not my child. And she knew then what had happened during the night. So they come before Solomon, present their case. Solomon said, bring a sword. Cut the baby in two. Give half to one woman and half to the other. Now, if you hadn't read any further than this, hadn't already heard the story, you might think, boy, that is, that's radical, that's drastic. What's going to happen here? Solomon had the wisdom to know that the true mother would speak up. And she did. She says, no, please do not divide the child. Let the other woman have the child. She was willing to give up her baby, her child, so the child could live. What was the response of the other woman? She says, divide it. Give her half, give me half. Solomon says to the other woman, give her the baby. She's the real mother. Where did such wisdom come from? Well, it came from God. And now we find this man of such astonishing wisdom asked the question, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? That's an important question. How can the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him? How should he be contained in this house? I believe that question is answered in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, especially in chapter 1. The Gospel of John is a gospel designed to show the Lord's people that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah, that he was indeed God manifest in the flesh and God's beloved Son. You know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most people can name those four Gospels, and, but that's the extent with a lot of people. <laughs> But you know, in Matthew 1.23, we have this statement. When the angel had told Joseph to ease his concerns about Mary, that Mary shall conceive and bring forth a son, or that which conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost, she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his, their sins. 
And in verse 23, he says, For it is written, Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we have these four Gospels here. And the first three are called synoptic Gospels because of their familiarity with each other and their similarities. But John's Gospel stands aside over here because God's going to use this man to write the Gospel of John. He's going to use this man, by the way, to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's going to use this man to write the book of Revelation. He's going to use him to write five books, and there's a distinction in all of these books. But let's take a look at chapter 1 here just for a moment in John's Gospel. Notice how it starts out. It starts out totally different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Now, we go to 1 John 5, 7. The Apostle John still the human writer. And there's a difference between the Apostle John and John the Baptist, you understand. We're not talking about John the Baptist. We're talking about the Apostle John. There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. All right. In the first chapter of 1 John... John says, the word was made manifest. He says, we heard it, and we saw it, and we looked upon it, we handled it of the word of life. The apostle John says, concerning this word, we saw him, we heard him, and we handled him. The apostle John is totally convinced this one he's talking about here was the son of God, you see. Now, a word... We use words to express ourselves, to communicate with one another. A word is made up of, of letters. And so John gives us this insight in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. said, I'm Alpha and Omega. That's two letters. It's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending. Twice in chapter 1, he will state that he's Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending and the first and the last. When we speak, you know, we got, what, 26 letters in the English uh, alphabet. And we take those letters and we make words. And those words do what? They express what's in our mind and what's in our heart. That's why we need to be so careful what we say. Because it reveals a lot. It reveals a lot of what's going on right here or what's not going on right here. It reveals what's going on down here. And when your mouth opens up and words come out, sometimes it says more than you want it to say. But that's how we communicate, with words. Words made up of letters. Jesus Christ is God's communication to his people. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. But God, at sundry times and divers manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. People talk about the last days a lot of times. Let me, let me make this clear, just a brief point point. we move on. The last days begin during the lifetime of the Lord Jesus Christ. It represents the period of time from Jesus Christ's first coming to Jesus Christ's second coming. That dispensation is the last days. And sometimes the Bible speaks about the last days of the last days. All right, like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when he speaks about all those things that shall come to pass in the last days. You can find some of those things going back century after century after century, but I will tell you this, it, it seems like all those things together are coming to pass at one time right here in these last days. 
And then when the Bible speaks about the last day, the last day is the last day of the last days. Okay? So in these last days, from the time of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and first coming to his second coming, God has spoken to us by his Son, who John says is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That starts off a little bit like the Bible starts off in Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? In the beginning, in the beginning. Both of them start off in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And God said, ten times you find what it says, and God said. I really like these two expressions found in Psalms 33, verses 6 and 9. When David here says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and by the breath of his mouth were all the stars and everything created. By the word of the Lord. Well, this is the word of the Lord, the written word of the Lord, but this Bible didn't create all things. It's the second person of the Godhead, the word of God, that created all things. Then verse 9 says, For he spake, and it was done. He commanded it, and it stood steadfast. He's talking about creation right there. Talking about creation. John's writings are in harmony with Paul's writing. If you go to Colossians chapter 1, look about verses 11 and 12. It says, For by him are all things created, and by him all things consist. By him were all things created, they're in heaven and in earth, whether it be visible or invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. By all things, all things are created by him and for him. We notice this, all things are created by him, all things created for him. Paul is saying the same thing John is saying right here. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ does not have a beginning. He does not have a beginning. But in the beginning, the Word spoke this world into existence. You go back there to Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in time past the fathers by the prophets, hath his last day spoken by his Son. It says, Whom he made heir of all things, by whom he made the worlds, plural, whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and when he had by himself purchased from our sins, set down the right hand of the majesty on high. He made the worlds, world, worlds, plural. He made them. God is a creator God. When you talk about this word here, we're talking about the eternal word that was made flesh, John 1, 14. For the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means tabernacled. It was made flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Word of creation. He spoke the world into existence by the Word of His power. And Hebrews 1, uh, 3 says, and by the Word of His power, all things are created, or by the power of the Word, and by the Word of His power, all things are sustained. He's the eternal Word, the Word of creation. But He's also the incarnate Word. Jesus Christ was not a spirit. Jesus Christ was not some phantom. Jesus Christ was not an illusion. Jesus Christ dwelt on this earth in a human body, just like you and just like me. From the time of his birth to the time of his death, the Lord Jesus Christ lived in this world and can identify with all aspects of life with those he came to save from their sins. And John makes that very clear. You go to John chapter 4, you're going to find where Jesus comes to Jacob's well, and the Bible says Jesus was weary. Spirits don't get weary. Bodies do. Bodies get weary. 
And then you're going to find where it says two verses later, he tells the Samaritan woman, Behold, I thirst. Spirits don't th- drink. <laughs> right? He became weary. He thirsted. Uh, you come to John chapter 11 when he's at the grave of Lazarus. We find where the Bible says that his soul was troubled. And in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible says, Jesus wept. When Jesus was on the cross, one of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross is, I thirst. Here's a man who thirsts. Here's a man who hungered. Here's a man that became weary. Here's a man who became troubled in his soul. Here's a man that wept. Spirits don't do that. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ was a man in this world here. He had a human body just like you and I do. And you go to John chapter 20, and you're going to find him inviting Thomas to take his hands or fingers and put them in the nail prints of his hand and thrust them into his side, a real body. He told the disciples to give him a piece of fish and a honeycomb, and he would eat it. Now, we're talking about a glorified body, but now that's a body at this point. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the eternal Word, He's the Word of creation, but He's also the incarnate Word. All things were made by Him. We're not talking about some things, majority of things. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. That's the way the Lord tells us the same thing in two different ways. So if we don't get it one way, we can get it the other. Notice again, all things were made by Him. You should understand that. And without him was not anything made that was made. There's the positive, there's the negative. He gives it to you in both directions so we can absorb it and understand that God's a God of creation and we're here as a result of that work of creation. Aren't you glad you believe that? Aren't you glad that you just simply believe by faith that you live and you exist because there was a time 6,000 years ago when God took dust from this earth and created a man and breathed his nostrils the breath of life and your atom multiplied. That's how you hear. You ever just take time and just stop and think a little bit? <laughs> we walk around, we're not plugged into a, to, to a socket. You know, some things won't operate if you don't have electricity, you've got to plug it in. Well, I, I don't walk around with a little cord, you know, and have to get charged up. I like to get charged up, but that's not the way to do it. Uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, they get charged up, and then when my charge runs out, I can't do anything, I plug it in again. I mean, this little thing in here that just beats here all the time. What causes that to beat? My microphone. <laughs> what causes that to beat? It's called life. <laughs> it's called life. All things were created by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And this life was the light of men. Now we're going to find where the Apostle John presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the Word. And now he's going to present the Lord Jesus Christ as life and light. Now what do you got to have to have life? You got to have food. You got to have water. You got to have light. And you got to have air. And in the Gospel of John, you're going to find all four of them associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was talking to that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he tells her this. He said, if you had known who you were talking to and the gift of God, you'd have asked of him and he would have given you living water. In contrast to the natural water that she came to draw, he'd have given her something far superior to that. He'd have given her living water. In John chapter 7, you're going to find verses about 31, 32 in there where the Lord Jesus Christ said, 
as it is written, he, that belie- he said, let him that believeth, let him that thirsteth come unto me. For it is written, he says, he that believeth on me, it says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spake concerning the Holy Ghost. Living water. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ presents himself, what? As the living bread that came down from heaven. Here's the water and here's the bread. And John tells us he is the light, right? And what about the air? Jesus explained the new birth in Nicodemus like this in John chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. And you hear the sound thereof. There's your air. The wind bloweth where it listeth. You hear the sound thereof and knoweth not where it cometh or where it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit of God. Will God indeed dwell here on this earth? I'm going to tell you he does. John chapter 1 is going to answer the question of 1 Kings 8, 37. In John chapter 20, when the Lord Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, appears the first time behind closed doors to his disciples, he says, Peace be unto you, as the Father sent me, so I send unto you. And having said it, he says, he breathed on them. Receive you the Holy Spirit, he says. They weren't talking about regeneration there. He's talking about the benefits of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. He says he breathed upon them. In John's Gospel, John presents the Lord Jesus Christ as being that air that we need for life and being that light we need for life and being those living waters we need for life and being that bread that came down from heaven for that life. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and this life was the light of men. John 14 and 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the way. In John chapter 6, when the Lord Jesus Christ started preaching, everybody thought he was the way when he was feeding them with the fishes and the loaves. Oh, he's the way. When he was doing the miracles, oh, he's the way. But when he started preaching, changed their minds. When he started preaching, what did he preach? John 6, 37, all the Father giveth me shall come to me. He that comes to me I'll no wise cast out, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. All he hath given me I shall lose nothing, but raise up again at the last day. John 6, 44, no man can come unto me except the Father sent me. Draw him, I'll raise him up again at the last day. When Jesus started preaching that, and then when Jesus said the flesh is the spirit, uh, the flesh profiteth nothing, it's the spirit that quickeneth, the Bible says, and many turned around and followed him no more. No longer was he the way. No longer was he the way. He's the truth. But you can go to John chapter 11, you'll find where they says, and they no longer believed on him. And he's the life, yet they crucified him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except by him. He, John presents him as the living word. John presents him as the light. And that word light spelled with a capital L. Jesus Christ is the only true light where all other light comes from. All other light comes from this light. He's the original light. He's light personified, and all other light comes from him. So we are presented as the word, as the life, the light, rather, 
And then we come to John 1.18, and he's now going to, John's going to record some words of John the Baptist. John the Apostle is going to record the words of John the Baptist. And in John 1.18, John the Baptist says this. He says, no man has seen God at any time and lived. Remember what God told Moses? And he says, but the only begotten Son, here's the first time now he's referred to as the Son, but the only begotten Son, the word begotten means it has a dignity, it means that which is unique, one of a kind. I've told you this before several times, but I'm going to tell you again for emphasis sake, it's important. These modern versions remove significant, important words from the Bible. And uh, the new uh, Internet, uh, English Standard Bible, NES, has become so popular, it's taken the word uh, begotten totally out. But that word begotten is telling you how Jesus Christ is God's son different than your God's son. So I want to drill that in one more time in case you won't hear, in case you done forgot it. I found God's people's memory is really short at times. Just try, answer, uh, just try asking somebody 30 minutes after you leave church today what I preached on and test me. <laughs> prove me wrong. I hope you prove me wrong. <laughs> The only begotten Son, it says, He dwells in the bosom of the Father. Him hath He declared. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten Son, that John the Baptist said was before me and is preferred before me. Twice he tells us, those in, in his audience, that. Two different times he says, He was before me because He's preferred before me, and I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose the shoe latches of His shoes. So here, the Apostle John, quoting John the Baptist, declares that the one he's talking about is God dwelling here on this earth. He is the Word made manifest. He's the light. He is the Son of God. And then we come to John 1.29 for an answer to another Old Testament question. We find over in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham takes his son, his only son Isaac, in obedience to God's command up to a mountain, Mount Moriah. God told him, he says, take thy son, thine only son, on top of this mountain and offer him there. It's, it's just, there's no way possible, I'm sure, that I could possibly relate to this. How I, could, I want to try to put myself in the shoes of Abraham, but how in the world can you do that? When God's going to tell you to take your only son, and Isaac was born to Abraham when he was 100 years old, contrary to nature, his body was dead, and God miraculously blessed him to have the child at 100 years of age. And now several years down the road, he says, you take your son, your only begotten son, you take him that mountain, and then you slay him on top of that mountain. And by faith, Abraham starts traveling up that mountain. And his son Isaac says, Father, he says, here I am. He says, I see the wood, and I see the fire, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb at? To make an offering, you've got to have a lamb. Abraham didn't tell Isaac, you're the lamb, Isaac. You're the offering, Isaac. <laughs> but by faith, he said, God shall provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. <laughs> he takes him on the top of that mountain. He builds an altar there, takes him, puts him on that altar, and draws his hand back. He's come out the 11th hour. Oh, here's the 11th hour. He's about ready to plunge a knife into his own son, his only begotten son. But he hears a voice that says, Stay thy hand. And he hears something behind him. He looks, and there's a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Brother, you see, to get the real impact of this lesson, I want you to understand 
that you and I should have been on that altar. And except God had provided a lamb, that's what would have happened. But as Isaac was untied and released and made to go free, so we were made to go free when the Lamb of God took our place on that altar. How could we not be in the house of God? How could we not worship God and try to honor Him the very best of our ability day after day after day if we just understand that one point I'm trying to make here at this time? This one point. How Abraham could travel up by faith and do that is beyond my comprehension. Uh, I, you know, what, I just don't, you know, I, I can't relate to that, but I know it's true. And Abraham, by faith, sets the example. And so we find over here in John 1 and 29 the answer to the question. Isaac said, Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And John, the Baptist, says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he pointed him out. Here comes Jesus Christ. Here comes the Savior. Here comes the Lamb. Here comes the Lamb that's going to take the place of the elect family of God. Here comes the Lamb that's going to take all their sins and iniquities in his own body to the tree of the cross. Here comes the Lamb that will be the offering, the sacrifice made unto the Father. And the Father looks and sees the Lamb and he sees perfection. He sees righteousness and holiness. He sees, sin, he sees sinlessness. He says, I accept the offering. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The sin of the world under consideration was totally taken away. And God will never charge you twice for a debt that's been paid. So John has presented him as the Word, as the Light, as the only begotten Son, and now the Lamb of God. And we find where Jesus is walking along the road and there's two that follow him. And when Jesus sees these two that are following him, he turns around and says, Whom seek ye? They said, Where dwellest thou? He says, Come and see. It was about the tenth hour of the morning. And we find where they came to where Jesus dwelt, and they spent, a, spent some time there. And one of those was Andrew, the brother of, John, of, of Peter. And after that experience, and you have a Think about those times when the Bible tells us things like this but doesn't give us any details. <laughs> I mean, they spent several hours with Jesus where he dwelt. I don't know what all they talked about. The Bible doesn't tell us what they talked about. But I tell you one thing, it wasn't about politics. I'll tell you that. It, I guarantee it wasn't about the weather. <laughs> I guarantee it wasn't about worldly things. I can assure you the conversation between Jesus and those two, which one was Andrew, had to do with far superior things than that. It had to do with heavenly things. I'm satisfied. About his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his blessings. And Andrew turns, comes and sees his brother Peter. He says, we have found the Messiah. Now John gives us the fifth title. In answering this question, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? Here's the fifth title, the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed. The Jewish people were looking for the Messiah. Andrew and the other disciples had heard John the Baptist preach. They'd heard John the Baptist point out the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. They are now convinced this is the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. And he goes and he tells his brother, you know, where, where should evangelism start? It starts with your own family. That's where it starts. He starts right to his brother. 
And he said to his brother, we found him. We found the Messiah. I can just imagine the excitement in his voice. I can just imagine the feeling within his heart, within his soul. We've just found the Messiah, the one that Isaiah talked about, the one that David talked about, the one that Solomon talked about, the one that Moses declared. All these Old Testament statements about the Savior, we believe are now fulfilled, and here is the Messiah. And that's when the Lord said unto, unto Peter, you know, that's when he actually gave him the name. You know, he was called Simon. He said, Simon, the son of Jonas. That should be called Cephas, which means a stone. And then we find where the Lord found Philip. And Philip comes to somebody that he's close to, the name of Nathaniel. And he comes to Nathaniel, and here's what he says to Nathaniel. We have found him. We have found him who Moses and the prophets have been writing about. We have found him. Jesus of Nazareth and Nathaniel says, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? That's his response. <laughs> what good thing can come out of Nazareth? To be called a Nazarene was not a compliment in that biblical day, I can assure you. They looked down upon this city. That's where Jesus grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in, uh, in, uh, in Nazareth. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, we have found him. That's who Moses was talking about. And then we find the Lord speaking to Nathaniel. He said, Nathaniel, behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He said, before thou was under the fig tree, I saw you, Nathaniel. Nathaniel has an experience he wasn't expecting that day. Nathaniel runs into a man who knows every single thing there is to know about him. That's what happened to the Samaritan woman, wasn't it? After her experience with Jesus there at Jacob's well, she ran back to her people and says, Come see a man who's told me all things I ever did. I don't want to find a man who's told me all things I ever did. I already know him. <laughs> but I know he knows. <laughs> and that's just between him and me. How about that? Sometimes people start telling me something, and I say, Whoa, right here, you just talk to the Lord about that. I don't need to know that. Now, I'll help you with some things I, that, that uh, you can talk to me about, but that's not one of them right there. <laughs> that's between you and the Lord. Now, I guess we can make by appointment uh, what we could arrange here at the church by appointment is by each one, Sunday by Sunday, we can put a, you know, a, um, a screen up here and we can show everybody your life. Uh, who wants to be first? I don't see a single hand. I am shocked. <laughs> I'm just blown away. <laughs> well, if you're not going to volunteer, I'm not either. Okay? <laughs> Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. That word guile means hypocrisy. He knew there was no hypocrisy in Nathaniel. He said, when you was under the fig tree, I knew thee. Aren't you glad, my friends, that wherever you've been in life, even before time ever began, God knew exactly where you were at, knew who you were, knew all about you. Nathaniel is amazed at this. And he said, Behold, thou art the Son of God and the King of Israel. Here's number six. The King of Israel. John presented him as the Word. He's presented him as the light. He's presented him as the Son of God. He's presented him as the Lamb of God. He's presented him as the Messiah. And now he presents him as the King of Israel. 
And the Lord says, Nathaniel, he says, because thou hast seen these things, thou hast believed, you know. He said, but thou shalt see greater things than these. He said, behold, heaven shall open. Here's the last thing he says, John 1, 51. Behold, the heavens opened, and the angels of God will ascend and descend upon the Son of Man. Now he's taking them back to Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis chapter 28, we find where Jacob has fled, fled the scene after he's done deceived his father, after he's lied to his father, after he has uh, deceived his father and getting the birthright that we normally went to Esau. Esau's upset, very angry. He has designs to take the life of his brother Jacob. And Jacob is fleeing. He's into the wilderness. And that night, Jacob lays down and for a pillow, he puts some rocks right under his head for a pillow to lay on, on that hard uh, dirt of the earth, my friends, with a pillow under his head. And that night, God appears unto him. And he saw, in that dream, he saw a ladder. And he saw the ladder extend from the earth right here, right into heaven. And he saw angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. That ladder is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus speaks about in John 1, 51. He said, Behold, heaven shall open, and you'll see angels ascending and descending, what? Upon the Son of Man. Number seven. The Son of Man, Son of God, Son of Man, Word, Lamb, Messiah, King, etc. All these titles are given to Jesus Christ to prove in John in chapter 1. And guess what? You got 20 more, one more glorious chapter, 20 more glorious chapters to read more and more about all of this. Paul tells Timothy, he says, There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad there's a link between heaven and earth? And that link's called Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad the Lord and Jesus Christ came down from heaven? And he came down here, my friends, uh, because of this commitment to the covenant of grace before time ever began when God gave him a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And even though they fell in Adam, the Lord and Jesus Christ in agreement to the covenant has agreed to come into this world and represent them in this life and live the life they couldn't live, cross the T's, they couldn't cross and dot the I's, they couldn't dot and finally go to Calvary and lay his life down there on behalf of sinners and save them from their sins. You love the Lord this day. In fact, you come to the house of God under the circumstances we're facing in, in life today. The fact that you're here this morning to sing the hymns of Zion. The fact you're here this morning uh, to join in in the spirit of prayer as men have led in prayer. In fact, you're here this morning to hear a poor, undone, vile sinner preach the word of God to you, to preach the gospel of God's grace, amazing grace, miraculous grace to you is a glorious sign that Jesus Christ died for you and saved you from your sins. And one day, heaven's going to be your home because God indeed came to dwell here upon the earth. Will God indeed dwell upon the earth? Yes, he will, and yes, he did. The heaven and heaven of heavens could not contain him. But Almighty God came down here clothed in human flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us, experienced life among us, took our sins in his own body to the tree of the cross, and there they were nailed, my friends, and your sins been put away as far as the east is from the west. You know, you can travel north and you get to the North Pole and you start going south. And you can travel south and go all the way down. You'll start going north. But if you start traveling east, you'll never go west. You know that? If you start traveling west, you'll never go east. That's why it says east-west, not north-south. 
and uh, God has put away our sins just that far, as far as the east is from the west. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I wish church was just starting. Uh, somehow or another, it just goes by so quick, so fast. I just wish we were just getting started. Can we back up and have a rerun? <laughs> what do you got, Brother Junior? All right, we'll turn to hymn number 130.